Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Thank you for that uh, fantastic introduction. Uh, Allow me to talk about my Emmy for the next 30 minutes. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, as said, my name is Jordan uh, Richard. Thank you for the pr- pronunciation. It's a Cajun name, uh, Cajun last name. I was born in New Orleans, uh, raised in Texas, and uh, I've been living in New York City for about the past 20 years. I have a wife, two kids, and a dog, and we live up in, up in Morningside Heights. Um, I do work as a television professional, and that's actually how I met your pastor, Russell. Um, I spend most of my days working in or around Rockefeller Center, and, uh, and, and, and Russell at the time was planning this church and prepare, preparing to plant this church and was working at Blue Bottle Coffee, right? Everybody know Blue Bottle Coffee? So Russell was working there, and you know how sometimes you meet somebody that just exudes um, openness and kindness and generosity and, and love, and you sit there and you go, I bet this person loves Jesus. And so Russell immediately was giving off those vibes. And so as I kept going to, to Blue Bottle, we connected. And eventually, before you know it, we were talking about faith, talking about church, grabbing a cup of coffee together. This was a couple of years before the pandemic. Uh, so we uh, he, obviously, he's, he's not hanging around Blue Bottle as much anymore. Um, and then also, I, I later met Katie because my son... Uh, goes to school that's the Geneva School of Manhattan on the Upper West Side. And Katie was, he's three years old. She was his first teacher ever. And so that was a really great experience. And so I, I don't have to tell you guys this, you know this, but you have a really amazing husband and wife team leading this church. They love people. Most of all, they love Jesus. And so uh, you guys are in good hands. We're encouraged by them, and we are encouraged by uh, this gathering here. Now, as a church... Reunion has been studying the the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So these are seven letters written by Jesus through the pen of John while he's in exile on the island of Patmos. And I'm not going to dig too much into the the history and the geography of of these seven letters and the churches at the time. Uh, If you want to learn more about that, Russell did uh, some, some deep dives into those the past Two weeks, and so go back and check those out on the live stream or on the podcast. But in almost um, all of these letters, Jesus is writing to these churches with a, a correction, a rebuke of an unrepentant or a festering sin that is going on inside these churches. And there's only two of the letters to two of the churches that it's all encouragement and no correction. And graciously, your pastor allowed me to preach on one of those churches. As a guest speaker, it would be hard to come in and like start talking about how lukewarm you guys are and all that stuff. I don't know, uh, I don't know you guys that well. And so I'm excited to get to share on one of the encouraging letters um, with no correction or critique. Um, I will say we're going to be talking about the church in Philadelphia. And as a long-suffering Dallas Cowboys fan, it's going to be difficult to say anything nice about Philadelphia. My man over here has a Green Bay Packers hat, 
And uh, I will say it was a little distracting in worship to see that there, knowing that they took us out of the playoffs a couple weeks ago. <laughs> but, um, but we're going to be talking about the church in Philadelphia. So if you have your Bibles or your digital copy of God's Word, turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 7 through 13. I'll be reading from the ESV. This is Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we welcome you in this place this morning. God, we ask that your spirit would work and move and power and reveal fresh and new things about this text to us. God, would your gospel truth pierce our hearts this morning and send us out of this place changed, ready to impact the city that you have called us to. May you be glorified now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, um, as I said, this letter is a letter full of encouragement, no critique or correction for the church in Philadelphia. Now, this doesn't mean that the church in Philadelphia is a perfect church. If I could quote or paraphrase Charles Spurgeon, who said, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because it would then cease to be perfect. And essentially what Spurgeon was saying is that there's no such thing as a perfect church. After all, the church is this. It's a gathering of people who are imperfect people, and when we come together, we make up the church. The church is not an institution or an organization. There's a lot of people that make this happen in the background and run things, but this is the church. It's the gathering of the people of God. So when we come together this morning, we are Reunion Church. I'm a part of a church called the Gallery Church. We meet over in Chelsea, and We have all of these different local churches and local expressions of faith communities because God loves diversity. And because the message of Jesus has spread so far and wide that we have different styles and expressions of worship that reach different people in the situation that is unique to them. But back then, there was just one church, one gathering in Philadelphia, and that is the church that Jesus wrote this letter to. So, Before we dig into the actual contents of the letter, 
I'd like for us to focus on the author of the letter. Because what Jesus does in all of these letters to the seven churches is he first introduces himself. And to each church, he introduces himself in a unique, different way. And so before we look at what Jesus says to this church and about this church, let's look at what he says about himself first. So let's focus on Christ before we focus on the words that he says to the church. So this is how he starts this letter to the church in Philadelphia. This is how he introduces himself through John's pen. Revelation 3, verse 7, it says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So what is Jesus saying about himself here? He says three specific things. Uh, Two of them are pretty easy to understand. The third is going to take a little unpacking. So the first thing he says, the words of the Holy One, what's he communicating? Holy means set apart. He's saying there's none like me. I am set apart in righteousness and holiness and perfection. And so he's saying, listen to me. You can trust what I'm saying. I am holy. He wants the Philadelphians to know that he has walked the path that they have walked. He's dealt with the struggles that they're dealing with. He's dealt with persecution. He's dealt with betrayal. And yet he did all of that without sinning. He is the Holy One. And so he says, lean in. Listen to the words of the Holy One. Listen to my words. So that's the first, the Holy One. The second one is the true one. Jesus says he is the truth. So anyone or anything else claiming to be the truth is actually a lie. There is only one truth, and it is Jesus. He actually describes himself in John 14 this way. He says, I am the way, truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Paul says in Romans 5, he says, Let God be true, and every man be a liar. Let God be true, and every man be a liar. And I think this is important for us to hear this morning, sitting in this room in 2024, Because we live in a time where in our society, when people use this phrase, live your truth. Have you ever heard that? Live your truth. It's a nice, it sounds nice. But what you realize is that it's a completely empty phrase. It's an empty phrase because if there is no standard for truth, if everything is relative, then there is no truth at all. And so Jesus speaks to this church and he speaks to us and he says, I am truth. I am the standard. I am trustworthy So listen to what I'm about to say in this letter. So he says, I'm the true one. I'm the standard. He says, I'm the holy one. And then there's this this tricky part where he says, he has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now this one takes a little bit of unpacking. What Jesus is doing here with this phrase, with this statement, is he's declaring his authority and his sovereignty, and his power to save. He's declaring his authority, and sovereignty, and power to save. And what he's actually doing is he's referencing the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. He's quoting Old Testament scripture. He's quoting from Isaiah 22. So look with me at Isaiah 22. This will be quick here. 2220. This is what Isaiah says. He says, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. 
and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. Sorry, he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. So, quick bit of context about what Jesus is talking about here. So, during the reign of King Hezekiah, there was this guy named Shebna, who was sort of like second in command to the king. He was essentially prime minister of Judah at the time, and he was not doing a good job. He was dishonoring God. He was prideful. And so Isaiah, God says through Isaiah, I'm going to rise up. I'm going to bring up this guy named Hilkiah. No, Eliakim, sorry. Eliakim. And so Eliakim is elevated to a place of authority, and Shebna is demoted. And so this transfer of power and authority that happens is signified by garments. He says, like, his robe and his sash I will give to you. But the big image that has the real significance here is what Isaiah calls the key to the house of David. And what's so important about David, as you know, that the Messiah will come from the lineage and line of David. And Eliakim himself was actually a descendant of David. You'll find his name in the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew. But in Revelation, Jesus uses this same imagery of the key to the house of David. He says, I have this key. Power, his reign would end. But Jesus' reign and kingdom is eternal. He never has to relinquish power or authority. He holds the key to the house of David. And he unlocks salvation to all who place their faith in him. So Jesus, as our eternal king, ushers in the kingdom for us in a way that no one else could he's the Messiah. And so that's how he introduces himself to this church. What a powerful introduction. Like, what people say about them matters, right? What they say about themselves matter. The, the, the introduction that was given to me was, was, was great, but listen to this introduction of Jesus of himself. That's somebody that you want to listen to. That's someone's words who you can trust. And so that's the first part that I want to look at of how he introduces himself. But then let's move to, the, to the, the content of the letter. And I want to break this letter up into to four parts. We'll make it easy. We'll do four Ps. Okay? These are four topics or four movements that Jesus hits on in his letter. And the first part, if you're taking notes, write down purpose. Number one is purpose. Jesus tells this church his purpose for them. Listen to verse 8. Jesus says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. So first he introduces himself. He says, I'm the Messiah. I have the key to the house of David. I have all power and authority. I can open doors that no one can shut. And then he says, I'm going to open a door for you that no one can shut. And this is parallel phrasing here, but most scholars agree that this this open door that Jesus is talking about for the church in Philadelphia is a, is a missional opportunity. It's an opportunity for them to take the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ to their city. So the first reference, when Jesus talks about himself, he's talking about the door. That first reference to himself is salvific, meaning pertaining to salvation. And then this second reference to the door, when he says, 
I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. He's saying that he's creating an opportunity to spread his good news to the city of Philadelphia. So Paul in First uh, and Second Corinthians and Colossians, he uses this same open door imagery. Listen to what he says in Colossians 4.3. He says, pray for us that my God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Similar idea, an open door, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are around you. So Jesus says to this church, this is my purpose for you. I have opened this door for you to spread the gospel. And this is significant because of the cultural context of that time. And I think the Philadelphians, when they heard this, they would understand the mission, right? They would get the task. Because historians tell us that the church in Philadelphia was founded to be an outpost of Hellenism. An outpost of Hellenism, meaning that it was established to be like a furthest outpoint that was used to spread the Greek culture and language as the Roman Empire extended east into this region. And so as the Roman Empire moved into the east, which what would become the Byzantine Empire and, and modern-day Turkey, they wanted people to assimilate to the culture of Rome. And so this city was meant to kind of be the front-runner in that effort. And so when Jesus tells them that he's opened a door for them that no one should, could shut, he was telling them that their purpose was not to spread influence of Rome, but to spread Christianity. He's telling them to be actually countercultural to the culture that they're living in and to spread the good news of Jesus Christ everywhere that they go. Be an outpost for the cause of Christ, for the one who has the key of David. So Jesus has this clear purpose for the church in Philadelphia. He wanted them to know that he was opening these doors and that they were to take the message to that region. Now, as a New Yorker, this letter is encouraging, but sometimes, sometimes I wish that I had a very clear communication of my purpose in life like this for me, right? Don't you wish that you could just wake up every morning, check your inbox, and you had an email from Jesus that says, hey, I've got an opportunity for you today to minister to uh, a coworker, somebody in your building, maybe somebody at your school. How would that shape the way that you live? How would that shape the way that you walk in your daily life? Like you would be on point, right? You'd be looking for these opportunities because, God, because Christ would be telling you every morning, I've got a mission for you. But the truth is that we actually have that charge from Jesus. In the Great Commission, right? He says, all power and authority has been given to me. That's the key of David image there. So go and make disciples. The truth is that we have a clear purpose and mission here as followers of Christ in New York City. He has sent us here for a purpose. And so all we need to do is step out in faith and be open to the opportunities that he has placed before us because Jesus holds all power and authority. So that's the first thing that he tells this church, his purpose for them. The next P that I want to look at is power power or lack thereof. Revelation 3, 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. And I know that you have but little power. 
and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Jesus says to this church, you don't have any power. You're small. They probably didn't have a huge budget. Probably didn't have influential people in their gathering. Maybe they didn't have the greatest teachers or speakers or leaders in their congregation. But what they had going for them, Jesus says, you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. He encourages them with this. He says, you are faithful church. And I think this is really important for us here at Reunion Church. What Jesus says to this church in Philadelphia is important for us as well. And if you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. Jesus is saying a small church that is faithful to him can still have a big kingdom impact. A small church that is faithful to him, committed to him, devoted to him, can still have an impact for the kingdom of God. Because the church in Philadelphia, they didn't have any power. They were small. They didn't look fancy from the outside like the church in Sardis. They didn't have good works and social service like the church in Thyatira. But Jesus praises their faithfulness, and he says, you don't need power because I hold the key of David. I have all the authority. And so if you persevere and remain faithful to me, I will use you for my glory. Small church can have a big impact for the kingdom if we are faithful to Christ. Now, can I tell you, this, this was actually hard for me to hear. This is hard for me to kind of suss through in my mind because I've lived in New York City for over 20 years now. And as I walk around this city, and don't get me wrong, I love the local church. I love the church. But I walk around the city, and I see bars that are filled with people worshiping drink and good times. And I see arenas filled with people worshiping sports teams and athletes. And I see offices filled with people worshiping success and career. And I see theaters filled with people worshiping the arts and celebrity. And in my weakness, sometimes I want to use the metrics of the world to judge the influence of the church. And that can be discouraging for me. I'm so tempted to just want to say, this church here, we need more people in here because then we can be powerful. But as I look back over 20 years in this city, I've seen God's faithfulness to his church. And I want us here in this room to take this lesson from the church in Philadelphia. If we pursue Jesus and if we remain faithful to him, he can do whatever he wants to do in this city through a union church, whether you're big or whether you're small. Because Jesus has all power and authority. We never had the power or the authority. Hillsong never had the power. Redeemer never had the power. It's always been and it always will be Jesus's power. So we can trust in that. So whether you're big, you're small, remain faithful to him, pursue him, and he can use you for his glory. Jesus goes on to say to the church in Philadelphia, you have kept my word and not denied my name. You've kept my word and not denied my name. Can we pause and, and just examine ourselves for a moment? Are we a church that denies his name? 
What about you individually in your, in your personal life? Because it's very easy to show up on a Sunday morning and, and just be present here. But do the liturgies of your life Monday through Saturday reflect what you truly love? Do the things that you do Monday through Saturday really reveal your true affections? If I were to read your social media bio, the thing that you present to the world about yourself, would you be telling the world about a a savior who loves them, or would you be telling them about all the identities that you cling to for significance in this world? Are we a church, and are we a people that denies his name? I noticed this in my own life, I can, I can be honest. As, as my career started to take off and I started to kind of work my way up the ladder, I felt like I stopped leading with my Christian identity and I started being a little more coy about my relationship with Christ. And, and, and as the culture became more hostile to Christianity and started to trying to, to tie Christ to a political movement instead of a spiritual movement, I felt sometimes I'd, I'd kind of have to take a step back and hide my faith and not lead with my Christian identity. Why would I do that? Don't I believe that Jesus can open doors that no one else can? And I know he says that about salvation, but why would I limit the God of all creation to any other place in my life? Church, do we live like we believe this? Do we live like we truly believe this? And guess what? The reality is, if we get run out of New York City tomorrow for proclaiming the gospel of Christ, what does this world have to offer that our God does not have for us? I think it was Mother Teresa who said, God has not called me to be successful, but to be faithful. In a city that puts success on the pedestal, success on the throne, Could we let that sink in? God has not called me to be successful, but to be faithful. There's nothing wrong with success. But if success is on the throne of your heart instead of Christ, there's something wrong. So how would our city look different if we prioritized faithfulness to Jesus over our own selfish ambitions? Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, you have not denied my name. You have remained faithful despite your small size and lack of power. A small church that is faithful and unashamed can have a big kingdom impact. So that's the first two things that he tells this church. And the third thing is he wants to address the persecution. If you're taking notes, write down persecution. So he talks about his purpose for them, power or seemingly the lack of power, And then he addresses the persecution in the church. Verse 9 says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, this verse is referring to a very specific group of Jews in Philadelphia that are persecuting the church. I feel like as a Gentile, I should, it's important for me to point out that this is not anti-Semitism, but this is actually an, an inter-ethnic conflict going on there because the early church was made up a lot of Jewish Christians. So it's, it's the traditional Jewish people are persecuting the Jewish Christians. But at its core, it's still 
persecution. And, and due to time this morning, I am not going to go too deep into persecution. And when you guys look at the letter to the church in Smyrna, they're going to talk a lot about persecution there. So I'll leave that for Russell. But I do want to say this, that the idea of persecution for us in the 21st century, living in America with the religious freedoms that we have and, and, and the basic protections that are sort of baked into our society, we don't fully grasp the severity of the persecution that the early church faced. We live in a more civilized time than the early church. And so in America, we don't really face a lot of physical persecution. Thanks be to God, right? Can I get an amen for that? We don't face a lot of physical persecution. But the, the type of persecution that we do face is ideological, right? The world is trying to stamp out your beliefs on what is true. And so even though we're not facing physical persecution, we need to be aware that we face an ideological battle in this country. And so Jesus was writing to these early Christians who were heavily ostracized and frequently killed for having a different practice of worship than the rest of the Roman world. The Roman Empire wanted the followers of Jesus to bow down to Caesar and declare Caesar is Lord. And, and the beautiful, rebellious refrain from the early church was not that Caesar is Lord, but that Christ is Lord. That was what they would say. So Jesus says, remain faithful, don't deny my name. And then he goes on to say, and eventually, I'll make them submit to you. He says, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Matthew Henry's Bible commentary says that this verse is essentially saying that Christ will make this church's enemies subject to her. The idea that these persecutors of the church would, would come and bow down at the feet of the early church is a picture of the change of heart that would happen in the culture when they learn that Jesus actually loves this church. He says they will learn that I have loved you. Now, confession about me, don't think I'm a nerd, but my, my favorite types of films um, are like medieval sword fighting, you know, horses and swords, that's my jam, right? So like Bravehearts and, and Robin Hoods and TV shows like The Last Kingdom on Netflix and, you know, even some Game of Thrones stuff. Um, and that's what I like. And if you watch a lot of these films or these TV shows, they use this phrase, bend the knee, right? That's their way of saying you're going to submit. Bend the knee. And Jesus is essentially saying that these people are going to bend the knee to you, but not out of force, not because you have oppressed them and won the battle, but they're going to bend the knee because they're going to learn that I love you, and that will change their heart. So as the early church faced this persecution, both from fellow Jews and from the, the Roman Empire, the call is to remain faithful to persevere, to stay humble, and know that God will fight your battles for you. So that's, that's persecution. The faithful church's enemies will be humbled, and that they will know that God loves his church. And then the fourth and final movement of this letter, it's the largest portion of it. I'm almost done. It's, it's large, but it's glorious. Number four is the promises. The promises 
Jesus has for this church. Look at verses 10, 11 with me. 10 and 11. It says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. What's going on here? What's Jesus saying to this church? Because Christ doesn't really get too specific here, it's hard to know if Jesus is talking about some specific trial that was going to happen on the whole world back then. We know that this area, Philadelphia, where they were, suffered from a lot of earthquakes. There was a lot of uh, earthquakes going on in that area that would like crumble, decimate the city, and they would rebuild. Maybe it was that. We also know that as, as the western part of Rome was, was sacked, this eastern part of Rome, um, Byzantium is what it, what it became, still maintained its, its, its population and its culture for many years after the western part of Rome was sacked. We don't specifically know what this trial that Jesus is talking about could have been something historical like that. But the more plausible conclusion, and since this is the book of Revelation, is that this promise that Christ is giving is concerning eschatology. And eschatology is just a fancy word for the theological study of judgment and the end times. And the primary reason that Bible scholars think that this promise is referring to end times is because most of the time in the New Testament, when, when, when Jesus is talking about persecution, and when God is talking to his people about persecution, he says, you're going to go through this, but I'm going to be with you. When you deal with something, it's going to be tough, but I'm going to be there with you. And here, Jesus actually says, I'm going to remove you from it. I'm going to keep you from this hour of trial. And this specific trial it says, will be on the whole world. He says he's going to take them out of it. He's going to protect them from it. Theologian W.M. Ramsey wrote concerning this verse, he says, he himself will keep thee from the hour of great trial, the great and imminent catastrophe that shall come upon the whole world. So not just his presence through the trial, but actually pluck this church out before this trial on the whole world comes. It's, it's akin to when Jesus talks about the tribulation, the great tribulation in Matthew 24. So that's what most scholars think that this is referring to. And one of the things that helps us understand verse 10 is actually verse 11, when Jesus says, I am coming soon. I'm coming soon says, hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And the translation of I am coming soon is tricky because it sounds like he's saying, I'm going to come in like 15, 20 minutes. That's, how, that's what we think of when we hear soon. But many translations believe that that Greek word for I am coming soon, he's actually saying, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming without warning. Strong's Greek concordance says this, this word does not mean immediately or necessarily in, a, in like a short amount of time, but rather without delay. 
So when I come, I'm coming without delay. Jesus is saying, when this hour of trial comes upon the whole world, I will not delay to rescue you. So hold fast. We get images of this from from Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. He writes about the second coming of Jesus like this. He says, For you yourselves are fully aware that on the day the Lord will come like a thief in the night. But Jesus is saying, I will come with haste. So hold fast, endure, persevere. Don't lose your crown. Don't lose your reward in the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying, when this moment of trial comes on the whole world, I'll come quickly and rescue. Now, you guys are all looking at me like I'm crazy, so can we pause for a second, right? We'll just pause and acknowledge that there are some great mysteries in the Bible that we will never fully understand this side of eternity, right? There are things in Scripture that we will never be able to fully wrap our minds around until we're with Christ united one day. But if you're, if you're the church in Philadelphia, Imagine reading this and having encouragement of Christ to persevere through all of these hard things, knowing that one day he's going to pull you out of the suffering of the world. So he says, patiently endure. So that's the first part of the promise. Deliverance from a trial that's coming on the whole world. And if you're the church in Philadelphia, that's good news. But here's the second part of the promise. Finally, Jesus gives the second part of this promise in verse 12. He says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God and out of heaven, my own new name. He says, I will make the one who conquers a pillar in my temple. What does that mean? What does that mean? The book of Revelation itself says that there is no temple in the New Jerusalem. Listen to Revelation 21, verse 22. It says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. What's Jesus saying here? If there's no temple, and he's saying, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple. God's saying, I'm going to make you a pillar in this temple, and the actual temple is me. He's saying, you will dwell and be kept. You will be held secure in the arms of your God. You are secure in him. Two summers ago, uh, my family and I uh, took a trip to to Italy, and um, this was post-pandemic. We couldn't wait for the pandemic to end. We bought these tickets, and we kept having to push off the trip. And it was beautiful, but the last two days we spent in Rome. And Rome is this incredible ancient city, and we walked around Rome in, in awe of the architecture in places like the Colosseum and the Palatine Hill and the Roman Forum. And almost everywhere you went was all of this architecture with pillars holding up different things and, and all of these statues of, of, uh, of, of Caesars. And, and warriors and historical figures. Sometimes they were just lining the piazzas. Incredible city. 
These statues are elevated on pedestals and lifted up for all to see. Many of them were restored or in need of restoration, and some were just in plain ruins. But the common theme among all of these statues that we saw is the people that the statue was made to honor. They're all dead. They're all gone. They have a decaying legacy. And as I read verse 12, and and Jesus says, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. All of these statues came to mind. And for the early church in Philadelphia, this small, weak church, this promise from Jesus was the promise of an eternal legacy, far different from the decaying, fading legacies of the Roman Empire and of this world. And if we read on in verse 12, Jesus goes on to say, For the one that conquers, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and my own new name. No doubt, this was an encouragement for the Philadelphians who felt like an outsider in their own city. Jesus says, I'll give you a name. I'll give you citizenship. I'll give you security, a feeling of identity and belonging. To these Philadelphia Christians that weren't assimilating into the culture of Rome, but they were, they were actually looking for a citizenship, looking towards a citizenship where Jesus is their king. And he holds all authority. So Jesus says, hold fast, stay faithful to me, and you'll be firmly and eternally established in me. Now, as the church in New York City, I feel like this resonates with us so deeply. You ever feel like an outsider here? As a Christian, do you ever feel like you don't quite fit in? I know there are many times where I would just be walking around this city and God will remind me that this is not my home. As much as I love New York City, this is not my home. We weren't meant to be fully accepted by this world because this world did not fully accept Jesus. But thanks be to God that he offers us belonging and identity and citizenship and security in himself. Even the Roman Empire had an expiration date. But the kingdom of Jesus is eternal. So, Reunion Church, remain faithful, hold fast, and know that you might be weak, but he is strong. So that's the encouragement that Jesus gives to this church in Philadelphia, and I think is for us this morning as well. But here's the bad news. The bad news is, You will mess up. You will fall short. You will miss the mark. You'll miss the opportunity to share the gospel with your coworkers or your classmate. Some days you'll look more like the culture of the world than the culture of Christ. You might even deny his name. Peter did it three times. But just like there's no perfect church, there's also no perfect Christian. Jesus lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And so if you get discouraged by any of this, look to the cross. Look to the cross of Christ. Scripture says, God made him who had no sin to be sin on our account so that we 
to become the righteousness of God. So we find encouragement when we look to the cross and know that Jesus paid the sacrifice for our sins so that we could receive his righteousness. Because we're going to mess up, right? We're going to screw up. We're going to fail. We're not going to get it right all the time. But the Father knows that. The Father knows that. And he holds you safely and securely in his arms. When you mess up, he picks you up, and he dusts you off, and he says, get back out there. I love you. I'm for you. You are mine. Let's be reminded of that this morning. Rest in his grace. Let's pray.